A reading from James Harriet's Dog Stories, number 18, Cindy. The name was on the garden gate, Lilac College. I pulled out my list of visits and checked the entry again. Family Cook at Lilac College by Marson Hall. Dog overdue for litter. This was the place, all right. Standing in the grounds of the hall, a 19th century mansion house whose rounded turrets reared above the fringe of pine trees less than half a mile away. The door was opened by a heavy-featured dark woman of about 60 who regarded me unsmilingly. Good morning, Mrs. Cook, I said. I come over to see your dog. She still didn't smile. Oh, very well. You better come in. She led me into a small living room and, as a little Yorkshire terrier jumped down from the armchair, her manner changed. Come here, Cindy, my darling, she cooed. This gentleman's come here to make you better. She bent down and stroked the little animal, her face radiant with affection. I sat down in another armchair. Well, what's the trouble, Mrs. Cook? Oh, I'm worried. I'm worried. She clapped her hands anxiously. She should have her pups yesterday. The litter is not, nothing's happening. I couldn't sleep all night. I'm worried if anything happens to this little dog. I looked at the terrier, tail wagging, gazing up, bright-eyed under her mistress' caress. She doesn't seem distressed at all. Has she shown any signs of labor? What do you mean? Well, has she been panting or uneasy in any way? Is there any discharge? No, nothing like that. I beckoned to Cindy and spoke to her, and she came timidly across the lintel till I, I was able to lift her on to my lap. I palpated the distended abdomen. There was a lot of pups in there, but everything appeared normal. I took her temperature normal again. Bring me some warm water and soap, Mrs. Cook, will you please? I said that Terry was so small that I had to use my little finger soap and disinfect to examine her, and as I felt carefully forward, the walls of the vagina were dry and clinging to the cervix. When I reached it, it tightly closed. I washed and dried my hands. This little dog isn't anywhere near whelping, Mrs. Cook. Are you sure you haven't got your dates wrong? No, I haven't. It was six... Three days yesterday, she paused and thought for a moment. Now, I better tell you this, young man. Cindy had pups before, and she did self, and same thing, wouldn't get on with the job. That was two years ago when I was living over in Listendale. I got Mr. Broomfield, the vet, to her, and he just gave her an injection, and it was wonderful. She had the pups half hour after it. I smiled, yes, that would be... Trend. She must have been actually whelping when Mr. Broomfield saw her. Well, whatever it was, young man, I wish you'd give her some now. I can't stand all this suspense. I'm sorry. I lifted Cindy from my lap and stood up. I can't do that. It would be very harmful at this stage. She stared at me and struck me that the dark face could look very forbidding. So you're not going to do anything at all? Well, there are times when it is a soothing procedure to give a client something to do 
even if it's unnecessary. Yes, I got some tablets in the car. They'll help to keep the little dog fit until she whelps. But I but I'd rather far rather that you give her an injection. It was just a little prick. Didn't take Mr. Broomfield more than a second to do. I assure you, Mrs. Cook, it can't be done at the moment. I'll get the tablets from the car. Her mouth tightened. I could see she was grievously disappointed in me. Oh, well, if you won't, you won't, so you better get those things. She paused, and me name isn't Cook. It isn't? No, it isn't, young man. She, she didn't seem disposed to offer further information, so I left in some be bewilderment. Out in the road, a few yards from my car, a farm man was trying to start a tractor. He called over to me. Hey, the lady in there says her name isn't Cook. She's right and all. She's the cook over at the hall. You got a bit mixed up. He laughed heartily. It all became suddenly clear. The entry in the day book, everything was her right name then. What's her right name? Bobby. He, he shouted just as the tractor roared into life. Funny name, I thought, as I produced my harmless vitamin tablet from the boot and returned to the cottage. Once inside, I did my best to put things right with plenty of yes, Mrs. Booby, and no, Mrs. Booby, but the lady didn't thaw. <laughs> I told her not to worry and that I was sure nothing would happen for several days, but I could tell I wasn't impressing her. I waved cheerfully as I went down the path. Goodbye, Mrs. Booby, I cried. Don't hesitate to ring me if you're in doubt about anything. She didn't appear to have heard. Oh, I wish you say as I say, she wailed. I wish you would do as I say, she wailed. It was just a little prick. The good lady didn't, didn't certainly didn't hesitate to ring. She was at me again the next day, and I had to rush out to her cottage. Her message was the same as before. She wanted the wonderful injection, which would make the pups pop out, and she wanted it right away. Mr. Broomfield hadn't messed about and wasted time like I had, and on the third and fourth, fifth morning, she had me as Marston examining the little dog and reciting the same explanation. Things came to a head on the sixth day. In the room of Lilac Cottage, the dark eyes held a desperate light as they stared into mine. I'm about the end of my tether, young man, I tell you. I'll worry if anything happens to this dog. I'll worry, don't you understand? Of course, I know how you feel about her, Mrs. Booby. Believe me, I fully understand. Then why don't you do something, she snapped. I dug my nails into my palms. Look, I told you, a pituitrine injection works by contracting the muscular walls of the uterus so it can only be given when labor has started and the cervix is open. If I find it is indicated, I will do that. But if I give you this injection now, it could cause rupture to the uterus. It could cause death. I stopped because I fancy little bubbles were beginning to collect at the corners of my mouth. But I don't think she had listened to a word. She sunk her head in her hands all this time. I can't stand it. I was wondering if I could stand much more of it myself. Bulging Yorkshire Terrier had begun to prance 
through my dreams at night, and I greeted each new day with a silent prayer that the pups had arrived. I held up my hand to Cindy, and she crept reluctantly towards me. She was heartily sick of this strange man who came every day and squeezed her and stuck fingers into her, and she submitted again with trembling limbs and frightened eyes to the indignity. Mrs. Booby, I said, are you absolutely sure the dog didn't have access to Cindy after the service date you gave me? She snipped, you keep asking me that, and I've been thinking about it. Maybe he did come a week after. Now I think on. Well, that's it then, I spread my hands. She held to the second mating, so she should be due now tomorrow. Ah, would still be far rather you would give it over there today like Mr. Broomfield did. It was just a little prick. But Mrs. Booby, and let me tell you another thing, my name is not Booby. I clutched at the back of the chair. It's not? Nah. Well, what is it then? It's Dooley. Dooley? She looked very cross. Right, right. I stumbled down the garden path and drove away. It was not a happy departure. Next morning, I could hardly believe it when there was no call from Martson. Maybe all was well at last, but I turned cold when an urgent call to go to Lilac College was passed on to one of the farms on my round. I was right at the far end of the practice area and was in the middle of a tough calving. It was well over three hours before I got out of the the now familiar garden gate. The cottage door was open and I ventured up the path a little brown missile hurtled out at me. It was Cindy, but a transformed Cindy, a snarling, barking little bundle of ferocity, and though I recoiled, she fastened her teeth on my trouser cough and hung on grimly. I was hopping around on one leg trying to shake out the growling little creature when a peal of almost girlish laughter made me look around. Mrs. Dooley, vastly amused, was watching me from the doorway. My word, she's different since she has them pups. Just shows what a good little mother she is guarding them like that. She gazed fondly at the tiny animal dangling from my ankle. Had the pups? Eh, when they said you be lo a long time, I rang Mr. Farnan. He came right over, and you know he gave Cindy that injection. I want, I want it all along, and I tell you, it wasn't right out of the garden gate before the pups started. She has seven, beautiful they are. Ah, oh, well, that's fine, Mrs. Dooley, splendid. Seaford has obviously felt a pup in the passage. I finally managed to rid myself of Cindy, and when her mistress lifted her up, I went into the kitchen to inspect the family. They certainly were grand pups. I lifted the squawking little morsel one by one from their basket while their mother snarled from Mrs. Dooley's arms like a starving wolfhound. They're lovely, Mrs. Dooley, I murmured. She looked at me pityingly. I told you what to do, didn't I? But you wouldn't aim it. I only needed a little prick to, oh, that Mr. Farner, a lovely man, just like Mr. Broomfield. That was a bit much, but you must realize, Mrs. Dooley, he just happened to arrive at the right time if I had come. Now, now, young man, be fair. I'm not blaming you, but some people have had more experience. We'll all have to learn. 
she sighed remissingly. It was just a little prick. <laughs> Mr. Farden have to show you how to do it. I tell you, he wasn't right out of the garden gate. Enough is enough. I drew myself up to my full height. Mrs. Dolly, madam, I said frigidly, let me repeat once and for all. Oh, hoity, toity, hoity, toity. Don't get on your high horse with me, she exclaimed. We managed very nicely without you, so don't complain. Her expression became very severe. And I'll, and one more thing. My name is not Mrs. Dooley. <laughs> my brain reeled for a moment. The world seemed to be crumbling about me. What did you say? I said, my name is not Mrs. Dooley. It isn't? No. She lifted her left hand, and as I gazed at it dully, I realized it must have been all that mental stress which had prevented me from noticing the total absence of rings. Now, she said, it's Miss. <laughs> Points up the fact that sometimes you feel you are a loser from the start. When you can't even get a client's name right, it is no use trying to prove you are using the correct treatment. When I first came to Darby, Siegfried told me that the veterinarian practice offered unreviled opportunities for making a fool of yourself. He was right. And now was the story of Cindy, the dog, and the seven little pups. I hope you enjoyed that. And that's life in the big farm being a veteran. Veteranian. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed the story. The Horse and His Boy Chapter 1 How Chesta Set Out on His Travels This is the story of an adventure that happened in Narnia of Kellerman in the land between the Golden Age when Peter was High King in Narnia and his brother and his two sisters were king and queen under him. In those days, far south in Calamere, on a little creek of the sea, there lived a poor fisherman called Arshish. And with him there lived a boy who called him father. The boy's name was Shasta. On most days, Arshish went out into his boat to fish in the morning, and in the afternoon he harnessed his donkey to a cart and loaded the cart with fish and went a mile or so southward to the village to sell it. If it had sold well, he would come home in moderately good temper and say nothing to Chasta. But if he had sold it badly, he would find fault with him and perhaps beat him. There was always something to find fault with, for Chasta had plenty of work to do. Mending and washing the nets, cooking the supper, and cleaning the cottage in which they both lived. Chasta was not all interested in anything that lay south of his home because he had once or twice been to the village with Arshish and he knew that there was nothing very interesting there. In the village, he only met other men who were just like his father, men with long, dirty robes, robes and wooden shoes turned up at the toe. 
and turbans on their heads and beards talking to one another very slowly about things that sounded dull. But he was very interested in everything that lay to the north because no one ever went that way and he was never allowed to go there himself. When he was sitting out of doors mending the nets and all alone he would often look eagerly to the north one could see nothing but a grassy slope running up to a level ridge and beyond that the sky with perhaps a few birds in it sometimes if Archie was there Chester would say oh my father what is there beyond that hill and then if the fisherman was in bad temper he would box Chester's ears and tell him to attend to his work. Or if he was in a peaceable mood, he would say, Oh, my son, do not allow your mind to be distracted by idle questions. For one of the poets has said, Application to business is the root of prosperity. But those who ask questions do not concern them are steering the ship of folly towards the rock of indigence. Shasta thought that beyond the hill there must be some delightful secret which his father wished to hide from him. In reality, however, the fisherman talked like this because he didn't know what lay to the north. Neither did he care. He had a very practical mind. One day, there came from the south a stranger who was unlike any man Chasta had seen before. He rode upon a strong, a strong dapple horse with flowing mane and tail, and his stirrups and bridle were inlaid with silver. The spikes of a helmet projected from the middle of his silken turban, and he wore a shirt of chain mail. By his side hung a curving scimitar, a round shield studded with bosses of brass hung on his back, and his right hand grasped a lance. His face was dark, but this does not surprise Shasta because all the people of Kellermine are like that. What did surprise him was the man's beard, which was dyed crimson and curled and gleaming with scented oil. For Archie's knew by the gold ring of the stranger's bare arm that he was a Tarkin, or great lord, and he bowed, kneeling before him, till his beard touched the earth and made signs to Chasta to kneel also. The stranger demanded hospitality for the night, which, of course, the fishermen dare not refuse. All the best they have said before the Tarkin for supper, and he didn't think much of it. And Chasta, as always happened when the fisherman had company, was given a hunk of bread and turned out the cottage. On these occasions, he usually slept with the donkey in his little thatched stable, but it was much too early to go to sleep yet, and Chasta, who had never learned that it was wrong to listen behind doors, sat down with ears to the crack of the wooden wall of the cottage to hear what the grown-ups were talking about. And this is what 
he heard and now O my host said to Tarkin I have a mind to buy the boy of yours O my master replied the fisherman and Chester knew by the wheedling tone the greedy look that was probably coming into his face as he said it what price could induce your servant poor though he is to sell into slavery his only child and his own flesh has not one of the poets said natural affection is stronger than soup and offspring more precious than carbuncles It is even so, replied the guest dreadily. But another poet had likewise said, He who attempts to deceive the judicious is already boring his own back to the scourge. Do not load your aged mouth with falsehood. This boy is manifestly no son of yours. For your cheek is as dark as mine, but the boy is fair and white like that accursed but beautiful barbarians who inhabit the remote north. How well said, answered the fisherman, that swords can be kept off with shields, but the eye of wisdom pierced through every defense. Known then, O oh my formidable guest, that because of my extreme poverty, I have never married and have no child. But in the same year in which the Tisroch, may he live forever, began his august and beneficent reign on a night when the moon was at her full, it pleased the gods to deprive me of my sleep. Therefore I arose from my bed in this hobo and went forth to the beach to refresh myself while looking upon the water and the moon and breathing the cold air. And presently I heard a noise as of oars coming to me across the water, and then, as it were, a weak cry. And shortly after the tide brought to the land a little boat in which there was nothing but a man with extreme hunger and thirst who seemed to have died but a few moments before, for he was still warm. And an empty water skin and a child still living. Doubtless, said I, these unfortunates have escaped from the wreck of a great ship. But the admirable, the the design of the gods, the elder has starved himself to keep the child alive and has perished in sight of land. Accordingly, remember how the gods never fail to reward those who befriend the destitute and be moved by compassion, for your servant is a man of tender heart. Leave out all these idle words in your own praise, interrupted the Tarkan. It is enough to know that you took the child and have had ten times the worth of his daily bread out of him in labor, as anyone can see. And now tell me at once what price you put on him, for I am wearied with your loquacity. You yourself have wisely said, answered Arshish, 
that the boy's labor has been to me an inestimable, inestimable value. This must be taken into account in fixing the price, for if I sell the boy, I must undoubtedly either buy or hire another to do his work. I'll give you fifteen crescents for him, said the Tarkan. Fifteen, cried Arshish in a voice that was something between a whine and a scream. Fifteen! For the prop of my old age and the delight of my eyes do not mock my gray beard. Tarkan thought you be. My price is seventy. At this point, Chester got up and tipped away. He had heard all he wanted, for he often listened to what men were bargaining in the village and knew how it was done. He was quite certain that Arshish would sell him at the end for something much more than 15 crescents and much less than 70. But that he and the Tarkin would take hours in getting to an agreement. You must not imagine that Chasta felt at all as you and I would feel if we had just overheard our parents talking about selling us for slaves. For one thing, his life was already little better than a slavery. For all he knew, the lordly stranger on the great horse might be kinder to him than Arshish. For another, the story about his own discovery in the boat had filled him with excitement and with a sense of relief. He had often been uneasy because, try as he might, he had never been able to, to love the fisherman. And he knew that a boy ought to love his father. And now, apparently, he was no relation to Arshish at all. That took a great weight off his mind. Why, I might be anyone, he thought. I might be the son of a Tarkin myself, or the son of a Tishrak, may he live forever, or of a god. He was standing out in the grassy place before the cottage while he thought these things. Twilight was coming on a pace and a star or two was already out. But the remains of the sunset could still be seen in the west. Not far away, the stranger's horse, loosely tied to an iron ring in the well of the donkey's stable, was grazing. Shasta strolled over to it and patted his neck. It went on tearing up the grass and took no notice of him. Then another thought came into Chasta's mind. I wonder what sort of man that Tarkin is, said he out loud. It would be splendid if he was kind. Some of the slaves in a great lord's house have next to nothing to do. They wear lovely clothes and eat meat every day. Perhaps he'll take me to the wars and I save his life in a battle and then he'll set me free and adopt me as his son and give me a palace and a chariot and a pseudo armor. But then he might be a horrid, cruel man. He might send me to work on the field in chains. I wish I knew. How can I know? I bet this horse knows if only he could tell me. The horse had lifted his head, Shasta struck its smooth as satin nose and said, I wish you could talk, old fella. And then for a second he thought he was dreaming for quite distinctly, though in a low voice the horse said, What I can? Shasta stared into the great eyes of his own 
grew almost as big with astonishment. How ever did you learn to talk, he asked. Hush, not so loud, replied the horse. Where I come from, nearly all the animals talk. Where is that? asked Chasta. Narnia, answered the horse. <laughs> the happy land of Narnia, Narnia, of the healthy mountains and the thymy downs, Narnia, of the many rivers, the splashing glens, the mossy caverns, and the deep forest ringing with the hammers of the dwarves. <laughs> oh, the sweet air of Narnia. An hour's life there is better than a thousand years in Kellermere. It ended with a whining that sounded very like, like a sigh. <laughs> How did you get here, said Chasta. Kidnapped, said the horse, or stolen or captured, whichever you like to call it. I was only a foal at the time. My mother warned me not to range in southern slopes into Archenland and beyond, but I wouldn't heed her, and by the lion's mane, I have paid for all my folly. All those years I've been a slave to humans, hiding my true nature and pretending to be dumb and witless like their horses. Why didn't you tell them who you were? No such a fool, that's why. If they once found out I could talk, they would have made a show of me at fairs and guarded me more constantly than ever. My last chance of escape would have been gone. And why, began Chesta, but the horse interrupted him. Now look, it said, we mustn't waste time on idle questions. You want to know about my master, the Tarkin Andradin. Well, he's bad. Not too bad to me, for a war horse caused too much to be treated very badly. But you better be lying dead tonight than go to be a human slave in his house tomorrow. Then I'd better run away, said Chasta, turning very pale. Yes, you have, said the horse, but why not run away with me? Are you going to run away too, said Chasta? Yes, said the horse, if you'll come with me. This is the chance for both of us. You see, if I run away without a rider, Everyone who sees me will say stray horse and be after me as quick as he can. With a rider, I chance to get through. That's where you can help me. On the other hand, you can't get very far on those two silly legs of yours. What observed legs human have. Without being overtaken. But on me, you can outdistance any other horse in this country. That's where I can help you. By the way, suppose you know how to ride. Oh, yes, of course, said Chasta. At least I've written the donkey. Written the what? <laughs> Retorted the horse with extreme contempt. At least that is what he meant. Actually, it came out in a sort of a neigh. Written the what? <laughs> Talking horse always become more horsey in accent when they are angry. In other words, he continued, you can't ride. That's a drawback. I'll have to teach you as we get along. If you can't ride, can you fall? I suppose anyone can fall, said Chester. 
I mean, can you fall and get up again without crying and mount again and fall again and yet not be afraid of falling? I'll try, said Chasta. Poor little beast, said the horse in a gentler tone. I forgot you're only a fool. We'll make a fine rider of you in no time. And now we mustn't start until those two in the hut are asleep. Meantime, we can make our plans. My Tarkan is on his way north to the great city of Tashban itself and the court of the Tishrock. I say, put in Chasta in rather a shocked voice. Aren't you going to say may he live forever? Why? asked the horse. I'm a free Narnian, and why should I talk slave and fool's talk? I don't want him to live forever, and I know that he's not going to live forever, whether I want him or not. And I can see that you're from the free North too. No more of this southern jargon between you and me. And now, back to our plans. As I said, my human was on his way north to Tashban. Does that mean that we better go to the south? I think not, said the horse. You see, he thinks I'm dumb and witless like the other horses. No, if I really were, the moment I got loose, I go back home to my stable and padlock back to his palace, which is two days' journey south. That's where he'll look for me. He'll never dream of my going on north on my own. And anyway, he would probably think that someone in the last village who saw him right through has followed us here and stolen me. Oh, hurrah, said Chasta, then we'll go north. I've been longing to go to the north all my life. Of course you have, said the horse. That's because of the blood that's in you. I'm sure you're a true northern stock, but not too loud. I should think they are asleep soon now. I better creep back and see, suggested Chester. That's a good idea, said the horse, but take care you're not caught. It was a good deal darker now and very silent except for the sound of the waves on the beach, which Chester hardly noticed because he had been hearing it day and night as long as he could remember. The cottage, as he approached it, showed no light. When he listened at the front, there was no noise. When he went around to the only window, he could hear, after a second or two, the familiar noise of the old fisherman's squeaky snore. It was funny to think that all went well, he would never hear it again. Holding his breath and feeling a little bit sorry, but much less sorry than he was glad, Chasta glided away over the grass and went to the donkey's stable, groped along to a place he knew where the key was hidden, opened the door and found the horse's saddle and the bridle which had been locked up there for the night. He bent forward and kissed the donkey's nose. I'm sorry, we can't take you, he said. There you are, last said the horse when he got back to it. I was beginning to wonder what had become of you. I was getting your things out of the stables, replied Chasta. And now, can you tell me how I put these on you? For the next few minutes, Chasta was at work very cautiously to avoid jingling while the horse said things like, 
Get the girt a bit tighter, or you'll find a buckle lower down, or you need to shorten those stirrups a good bit. When it was all finished, it said, now we got to go have range for the look of the thing, but you won't be using them. Tie them to the saddle bow, very slack so that I can do what I like with my head and remember, you are not to touch them. What are they for then, asked Shasta. Ordinarily they are for directing me, he replied. The horse, but as I intend to do all the directing on the journey, you'll please keep your hands to yourself. And there's another thing. I'm not going to have you grabbing my mane, but I say, pleaded Shasta, if I'm not to hold on to you, the reins or by your mane, what am I to hold on by? Your hold on with your knees, said the horse. That's the secret of good riding. Grip my body between your knees as hard as you like. Sit straight up, straight as a poker. Keep your elbows in. And by the way, what did you do with the spurs? Put them on my heels, of course, said Chasta. I do know that much. Then you can take them off and put them in the saddlebag. We may be able to sell them when we get to Tarshban. Ready? And now I think you can get up. Oh, you're a dreadful height, gasped Chasta after his first and unsuccessful attempt to get on the horse. I'm a horse, that's all, was the reply. Anyone would think uh, it was a haystack from the way you're trying to climb up on me. There, that's better. Now sit up and remember what I told you about your knees. Funny to think of me, who has led cavalry charges and won races, having a potato sack like you in the saddle. However, off we go. It chuckled, not unkindly. And it certainly began their night journey with great caution. First of all, it went just south of the fisherman's cottage to the little river, which there ran into the sea, and took care to leave in the mud some very plain hoof marks pointing south. But as soon as they were in the middle of the ford, it turned upstream and wadded till they were about a hundred yards further inland than the cottage. Then it selected a nice gravelly bit of bank which would be, which take no footprints and came out on the northern side. Then still at a walking pace, it went northward to the cottage, the one tree, the donkey stable and the creek, everything in fact that Chasta has ever known, has sunk out of sight in the gray summer night darkness. They had been going uphill and now were at the top of the ridge, that ridge which had always been the boundary of Chasta's known world. He could not see what was ahead except that it was all open and grassy. It looked endless, wild and lonely and free. I say, observed the horse, what a place for a gallop, eh? Oh, don't let's, said Chasta, not yet. I don't know how to, please, horse. I don't know your name. 
Breedy, hoo-ah, said the horse. I'll never be able to say that, said Chesta. Can I call you Bree? Well, if it's the best you can do, I suppose. You must, said the horse. And what shall I call you? I'll call you Chesta. I'm called Chesta. Hmm, said Bree. Well, now, there's a name that's really hard to pronounce. But now, about this gallop, it's a good deal easier than trotting if you only knew because you don't have to rise and fall. Grip with your knees and keep your eyes straight ahead between my ears. Don't look on the ground. If you think you're going to fall, just grip harder and sit up straighter. Ready? Now, for Narnia in the North. <laughs> Bree and Chesta, Chapter 2 A Wayside Adventure. It was nearly noon in the following day when Chasta was wakened by something warm and soft moving over his face. He opened his eyes and found himself staring into the long face of a horse. <laughs> its nose and lips were almost touching his. He remembered the exciting events of the previous night and sat up. But as he did, so he groaned. Oh, Bree, he gasped. I'm so sore all over. I can hardly move. Good morning, small one, said Bree. I was afraid you might feel a little bit stiff. It can't be the, the falls. You didn't have more than a dozen or so. And it was all lovely, soft, springy turf that must have been almost a pleasure to fall on. And the only one that might have been nasty was broken by the gorse bush. No, it's the writing itself that comes hard at first. What about breakfast? I had mine. Oh, bother breakfast? Bother everything, said Shasta. I tell you, I can't move. But the horse nuzzled at him with his nose and pawned him gently with, his, with a hoof till he had to get up. And then he looked about him and saw that where they were. Behind them laid a little copsey. Before them, turf dotted with white flowers sloped down to the brown of the hills, far below them, so that the sound of the breaking waves was very faint, lay the sea. Shasta had never seen it from such a height and never seen so much of it before. Not dream how many colors it had. On either hand of the coast stretched away, headland after headland and at that point you could see the white foam running up the rocks but making no noise because it was so far there were gulfs flying overhead and the heat shivered on the ground 
It was a blazing day, but what Chasta chiefly noticed was the air. He couldn't think what was missing until at last he realized that there was no smell of fish in it. For of course, neither of the cottage nor among the nests had ever been away from the smell in his life. And this new air was so delicious and all his old life seemed so far away that he forgot for a moment about his bruises and his aching muscles and said, I say, Bree, didn't you say something about breakfast? Yes, I did, said the horse. <laughs> Answered Bree. I think you'll find something in the saddlebags. They're over there on that tree where you hung them up last night, or early this morning, rather. They investigated the saddlebags, and the result were cheering. A meat pasty, only slightly stale, a lump of dried figs, and another lump of green cheese. A little flax of wine and some money, about 40 crescents and all, which was more than Chasta had ever seen. While Chasta sat down painfully and cautiously with his back against the tree and stared at the pasty brie, had a few more mouthfuls of grass to keep him company. Wouldn't it be stealing to use his monies? asked Chasta. Oh no, said the, the horse, looking up with his mouth full of grass. I never thought of that. A free horse and a talking horse mustn't steal, of course, but I think it's all right. We're prisoners and captives in enemy country. That money is booty, spoil. Besides, you are, how are we to get any food for you without it? I suppose like all humans, you won't eat natural food like grass and oats. I can't. Ever tried? Yes, I have. I can't get it down at all. You couldn't either if you were me. You're rum little creature, you humans, <laughs> remarked Bree. When Chasta had finished his breakfast, which was by far the nicest he's ever eaten, Bree said, I'll think I'll have a nice roll before we put on the saddle again. And he proceeded to do so on the grass. That's good. That's very good, he said, rubbing his back on the turf and waving all four legs in the air. You ought to have one, too, said Chasta. He snorted. It's most refreshing. But Chasta burst out laughing <laughs> and said, you do look funny when you're on your back. I look nothing of the sort, said Brian. <laughs> but then suddenly he rolled around on his side, raised his head, and looked hard at Chester, blowing a little. Does it really look funny? he asked in an anxious voice. Yes, it does, replied Chester, but what does it matter? You don't think, do you, said Bree, that it might be a thing talking horses never do? A silly clowning trick I learned from the dumb ones. It would be dreadful to find when I get back to Narnia that I picked up a lot of low, bad habits. What do you think, Chester? Honestly, now, 
Don't spare my feelings should you think the real free horses, the talking kind, do roll. How should I know? Anyway, I don't think I should bother about it if I were you. We got to get there first. Do you know the way? I know the way to Tashban. After that comes the desert. Oh, we'll manage the desert somehow. Never fear. Why, we'll be in sight of the northern mountains then. Think of it. To Narnia and the north. Nothing will stop us then. But I'll be glad to be past Tashban. You and I are safe after from away from those cities. Can't we avoid it? Not without going a long way inland, and that would take us into cultivated land and main roads, and I wouldn't know the way. No, we'll just have to creep along the coast up here on the downs. We'll meet nothing but sheep and rabbits and gulls and a few shepherds. And by the way, what about starting? Chester's legs ached terribly as he saddled Bree and climbed into the saddle. But the horse was kind to him. He went up at a soft pace all afternoon. When evening twilight came, they dropped and steep tracked into a valley and found a village. Before they got into it, Chasta dismounted and entered it on foot to buy a loaf and some onions and radishes. The horse trotted round by the by the fields in the dusk and met Chasta at the far side. This became their regular plan every second night. These were great days for Chasta, and every day better than the last as he muscle hardened and he fell less often. Even at the end of the training, Bree still said he sat like a bag of flour in the saddle. And even if it were safe, young on, I'll be ashamed to be seen with you on the main road. But in spite of his rude words, Bree was a patient teacher. No one can teach riding so well as a horse. Chester learned to trot, to canter, to jump and to keep his feet even when Bree pulled up suddenly or swung unexpectedly to the left or right, which, as Bree told him, was a thing you might have to do at any moment in a battle. And then, of course, Chasta begged to be told of the battles and wars in which Bree had carried the Tarkan. And Bree would tell of forced marches and the fording of swift rivers of charges and of fierce fights between cavalry and cavalry. When the war horses fought as well as the men, being all fierce stallions, trained to bite and kick and to rear at the right moment so that the horses' weight as well as the riders would come down on an enemy crest in the stroke of a sword or battle axe. But Bree did not want to talk about the war so often as Chasta wanted to hear about them. Don't speak of them, youngster, he would say. They were only the Tisrock Wars, and I fought in them as a slave and a dumb beast. Give me the Narnian Wars, where I shall fight 
as a free horse among my own people. Those will be wars we're talking about, Narnia, and the North. <laughs> Chesterton learned that he heard Bree talking like that to prepare for a gallop. After they had traveled on for weeks and weeks past more bays and headlands and rivers and villages than Chester could remember, these came a moonlight when they started their journey at evening. Having slept during the day, they had left the downs behind them and were crossing a white plain with a forest about half a mile away on their left. The sea hidden by low sand hills was about the same distance on their right. They had jogged along for about an hour, sometimes trotting and sometimes walking, when Bree suddenly stopped. <laughs> What's up, said Chasta. Shh, said Bree, craning his neck round and twitching his ears. Did you hear something? He says, listen. It sounds like another horse between us and the woods, said Chasta, after he had listened for a minute. It is another horse, said Bree, and that's what I don't like. It isn't probably just a farmer riding home. Late, said Chester with a yawn. Don't tell me, said Bree. That's not a farmer's riding, nor a farmer's horse either. Can't you tell by the sound? That's quality. That horse is, and is being ridden by a real horseman. I tell you what it is, Chester. There, there's a tartan under the edge of the wood. Not on his war horse is too light for that. On a fine blood mare, I would say. Well, let's stop now, whatever it is, said Chasta. You're right, said Bree. And why should he stop just when we do? Chasta, my boy, I do believe that someone's shadowing us at last. What shall we do? said Chasta in a lower whisper than before. Do you think he can see us as well as he hears us? Not in the light, so long as we stay quite, quite still, answered Bree. But look, there's a cloud coming up. I'll wait till that gets over the moon. Then we'll get off to our right as quickly as we can down the shore. We can ride among the sand hills if the worst comes to worst. They waited till the cloud covered the moon, and then first at a walking pace and afterwards in a gentle trot made for the shore. The cloud was bigger and thicker than it had looked at first, and soon the night grew very dark. Just as Shasta was saying to himself, we must be near at those sand hills by now, his heart leaped into his mouth because an appealing noise had suddenly risen up out of darkness ahead. A long, snarling roar, melancholy and utterly savage. Instantly, Breeze swerved around and began galloping inland again as fast as he could gallop. What is it, gasped Chaston? Lion, said Bree, without checking his pace or turning his head. After that, there was nothing but sheer gallop for some time. At last, they plashed Across a wide, shallow stream, a brie came to a stop in the far side. Chester noticed that he was trembling and sweating all over. That water may have thrown the brood off our scent, panted Bree. 
when he had partly got his breath again. We can walk a bit now. As they walked, Bree said, Chasta, I'm ashamed of myself. I'm just as frightened as a common dumb calomere horse. I am really, I don't feel like a talking horse at all. I don't mind swords and lances and arrows, but I can't bear those creatures. I think I'll trot for a bit. After a minute later, however, he broke into a gallop again, and no wonder, for the roar broke out again, this time on their left from the direction of the forest. Two of them, moaned Bree. When the day had galloped, when they had galloped for several minutes without any further noise from the lions, Chester said, I say, the other horse is galloping beside us now, only a stone's throw away. All the better, panted Bree. Tarkins on it will have a sword protect us all. But Bree, said Chester, we might just well be killed by a lion as caught, or I might, they'll hang me for horse stealing. He was feeling less frightened of lions than Bree because he had never met a lion, Bree said. Bree had. Bree only snorted in answer, but he did not sheer away to his right. Oddly enough, the other horse seemed also to be shearing away to the left, so that in a few seconds the spare between them had whitened a good deal. But as soon as it did, so there came two more lion's roars. Immediately after one another, one on the right and the other on the left. And the horses began drawing nearer together. So apparently did the lions. The roaring of the brutes on each side was horribly close and they seemed to be keeping up with the galloping horses quite easily. Then the cloud rolled away. The moonlight astonishingly bright showed up everything almost as it was broad day. The two horses and the two riders were galloping neck to neck and knee to knee just as they were in a race. Instead, Bree said afterwards that a finer race had never been seen in Kelomer. Jasta noted, now gave himself up for loss and began to wonder whether lions kill you quickly or play with you as a cat plays with a mouse how much it would hurt at that time. One sometimes does this at the most frightful moment. He noticed everything. He saw that the other rider was a very small, slender person, male clad, the moon shone on the male and riding magnificently. He had no beard. Something flat and shining was spread out before them. Before Chasta had time even to guess what it was, there was a great splash, and it found his mouth half full of salt water. The shiny thing had been a long inlet in the sea. Both horses were swimming, and the water was up to Chasta's knees. There was an angry roaring behind him, and looking back, Chasta saw a great shaggy and terrible shape crouched on the water's edge, but only one. We have must shaken off the other lion, he thought. The lion apparently did not think it's pretty worth a wedding. At any rate, it made no attempt to take the water in pursuit. The two horses side by side were now well into the middle of the creek and the opposite shore could be clearly seen. 
The Tarkin had not yet spoken a word, but he still thought Chasta. As soon as we have landed, what am I to say? I must begin thinking of a, out a story. Then suddenly two voices spoke at his side. Oh, I'm so tired, said one. Hold your tongue, Quinn, and don't be a fool, said the other. I'm dreaming, thought Shasta. I could sworn the other horse spoke. Soon the horses were no longer swimming, but walking, and soon with a great sound of water running off their sides and tails, and with a great crunching of pebbles under each eight hoofs, they came out on the further beach of the inlet. The Tarkan, to Chasta's surprise, showed no wish to ask questions. He did not even look at Chasta, but seemed anxious to urge his horse straight on. Bree, however, at once shouldered him in the other horse's way. He snorted. Steady there. I heard you. I did. There's no good pretending. Ma'am, I heard you. You're a talking horse. A Narnian horse, just like me. What is it got to do with you if he... She is, said the strange rider, fiercely laying hands on a sword hilt. But the voice in which the the words were spoken had already told Chester something. Why? It's only a girl, he exclaimed. And what business is that of you if I'm only a girl, snapped the stranger. You're only a boy, a rude, common little boy, a slave probably, who's stolen his master's horse. That's all you know, said Chester. He's not a thief, little Tarkiana. At least if there's been any stealing, you might just well say I stole him. And as far, it's not being my business. You shouldn't expect me to pass a lady on my own race in a strange country without speaking to her. It's only unnatural I should. I think it's very natural, said the mayor. I wish you would hold your tongue, Wing, said the girl. Look at the trouble you got us into. I don't know about trouble, said Chasta. You can clear off as soon as you like. We shouldn't keep you. No, you shan't, said the girl. What quarrelsome creature these humans are, said Bree to the mare. They're as bad as mules. Let's try to talk a little sense. I'll take it, ma'am. Your story is the same as mine, captured in early years of slavery among the Kelorminis. Too true, said the mayor with a melancholy whining. (laughs) And now perhaps escape? Tell him to mind his own business, hoo-wing, said the girl. No, I won't, Arvis, said the mayor, putting her ears back. This is my escape just as much as yours, and I am sure a noble war horse like this is not going to betray us. We are trying to escape to get... Narnia. And so, of course, are we, said Bree. Of course, you guessed that at once. A little boy in rags riding or trying to ride a war horse at dead of night couldn't mean anything but an escape of some sort. And if may say so, a high-born Tarkinan riding along at night, dressed up in her brother's armor, and very anxious for everyone to mind their own business and ask her no questions. Well, 
If there's no fishy, call me a cob. <laughs> All right then, said Arabis. You guessed it. Hu Wing and I are running away. We're trying to get to Narnia too. And now, what about it? Why, in that case, what is it to prevent us all to go in together? Said Bree. I trust, Madam Wing, you will accept such assistance and protection as I may be able to give you on the journey. Why do you keep on talking to my horse instead of to me? Asked the girl. Excuse me, Tarkinen, said Bree, with just the slightest backward tilt of his ears. But that's Kellermany talk. We're free Narnians, Hewing and I, and I suppose if you're running away to Narnia, you want to be one too. In that case, Hewing isn't your horse any longer. One might just as well say, you're her human. (laughs) The girl opened her mouth to speak and then stopped. Obviously, she had not quite seen it in that light before. Still, she said after a moment's pause, I don't know that there is so much point in all going together. Aren't we more likely to be noticed? Less, said Bree. And the mayor said, Oh, do let's. I should feel much more comfortable. We're not even certain of the way. I'm sure a great charger like this knows far more than do, than we do. Oh, come on, Bree, said Chasta, and let them go their own way. Can't you see they don't want us? We do, said Hedwing. Look here, said the girl. I don't mind going with you, Mr. Warhorse, but what about this boy? How do I know he's not a spy? Why do you say at once that you think I'm not good enough for you, said Chesta. Be quiet, Chesta, said Bree. The Tarkinian's question is quite reasonable. I'll vouch for the boy, Tarkina. He's been true to to uh, to me and a good friend, and he's certainly either a Narnian or an Archlander. All right then, let's go together. But she didn't say anything to Chesta, and it was obvious that she wanted Bree, not him. Splendid, said Bree. And now that we got the water between us and those dreadful animals, what about you two humans? taking off our saddles and are all having a rest and hearing one another's story. Both the children unsaddled their horses and the horses had a little grass and Arbus produced rather nice things to eat from her saddlebag. But Jasta sucked and said, no thanks, and then he wasn't hungry. And he tried to put on what he thought very grand and stiff manners. But as fisherman's hut is not usually a good place for learning grand manners, the result was dreadful. And he half knew what it wasn't a success and then became suckier and more awkward than ever. Meanwhile, the two horses were getting on splendid. They remembered the very name places, same places of Narnia and Grassland up above Beaver's Dam and found that they were some sort of second cousins once removed. This made things more and more uncomfortable for the humans until at last Bray said, And now, Tarkina, tell us your story. And don't hurry. I'm feeling comfortable now. Arvis immediately began, sitting quite still 
and using a rather different tone and style from her usual one. For in Keller men, storytelling, whether the stories are true or made up, is a thing you're taught. Just as English boys and girls are taught easy writing, the difference is that people want to hear the stories, whereas I never heard of anyone who wanted to read the essays. <laughs> That's the end of chapter two. Chapter 3 At the Gates of Tashban. My name, said the girl at once, is Aravis Tarkina, and I am the only daughter of Kishrash Tarkon, the son of Richi Tarkon, the son of Kidrash Tarkon, the son of Ilsombre Tishrok, the son of Ardi Tishrok who was descended in the right line from the god Tash. My father is lord of the providence of Calabar and is one who has the right of standing on his feet in his shoes before the face of the Tishrak himself. May he live forever. My mother, on whom be the peace of the gods, is dead, and my father has married another wife. One of my brothers has fallen in battle against the rebels in the far west, and the other is a child. Now it came to pass that my father's wife, my stepmother, hated me, and the sun appeared dark in her eyes as long as I lived in my father's house. And so she persuaded my father to promise me in marriage to Ahoshta Tarkan. Now this Ahoshta is of base birth, though in his later years he had won the favor of the Tishrak. May he live forever by flattery and evil counsel, and is now made a Tarkan, and lord of many cities, and is likely to be chosen as the Grand Vizier when the present Grand Vizier dies. Moreover, he's at least 60 years old and has a hump on his back, and his face resembles that of an ape. Nevertheless, my father, because of the wealth and power of this Ahoshta, and being persuaded by his wife, sent messengers offering me in marriage. And the offerer was favorably accepted, and Ahosha sent word that he would marry me this very year at the time of high summer. When this news was brought to me, the sun appeared dark in my eyes, and I laid myself in my bed and wept for a day. But on the second day, I rose up and washed my face and caused my mare wing to be saddled and took with me a sharp dagger which my brother had carried in the western wards and rode out alone. And when my father's house was out of sight and I was come to a green open place in a certain wood where there was no dwellings of men, I dismounted from when my mare and took out the dagger. Then I parted my clothes where I thought the readiest way to lay my heart, and I prayed to all the gods that as soon as I was dead, I might find myself with my brother. After that, I shut my eyes and my teeth, 
and prepared to drive the dagger into my heart. But before I had done this, the mayor spoke with the voice of one of the daughters of men and said, Oh, my mistress, do not by any means destroy yourself. For if you live, you may yet have a good fortune. But all the dead are dead alike. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say it half so well as that, muttered the mayor. Hush, ma'am, hush, said Bree, who was thoroughly enjoying the story. She is telling the grand color mirror matter, and no storyteller of Tishroy Court could be do it better. Pray, go on, Tarkina. When I heard the language of men uttered by my mare, continued Aravis, I said to myself, the fear of death had disordered my reason and subjected me to delusions. And I became full of shame, for none of my lineage ought to fear death more than the biting of a gnat. Therefore I addressed myself a second time for the stabbing. But Huing came near to me and put her head in between me and the dagger and discoursed to me most excellent reason and rebuked me as a mother rebukes a daughter. And now my wonder was so great that I forget about killing myself and about Ahasha and said, Oh, my mare, how have you learned to speak like one of the daughters of men? And Gwen told me what is known to all this company, that in Narnia there are beasts that talk and how she herself was stolen from thence when she was a little foal. She told me also of the woods, the water of Narnia, and the castles, and the great ships. Well, I said, in the name of Tosh and Azeroth and Sardinia, Lady of the Night, I have a great wish to be in the country of Narnia. Oh, my mistress, answered the mayor, if you were in Narnia, you would be happy, for in the land no maiden is forced to marry against her will. And when we had talked together for a great time, hope returned to me, and I rejoiced that I had not killed myself. Moreover, it was agreed between Wing and me that we should steal ourselves away together, and we planned it in this fashion. We turned to my father's house, and I put on my gayest clothes and sang and danced before my father and pretended to be delighted with the marriage which he had prepared for me. Also I said to him, Oh, my father, and oh, the delight of my eyes, give me your license and permission to go with one of my maidens alone for three days into the woods to do a secret sacrifices to Sardina, Lady of the Night, and of maidens, as is proper and customary for damsels when they must bid farewell to the service of Sardina and prepare themselves for marriage. And he answered, Oh, my daughter, and oh, the delight of my eyes, so shall it be. But when I came out from the presence of my father, I went immediately to the oldest of his slaves, his secretary, who had dangled me on his his knees when I was a baby and loved me more than the air and the light. And I swore to him to be secret and begged him to write a certain letter for me. And he wept and implored me to change my resolution. But in the end he said, to hear is to obey and did all my will. 
and I sealed the letter and hid it in my bosom. But what was in the letter? asked Shasta. Be quiet, youngster, said Bree. <laughs> You're spoiling the story. <laughs> She'll tell us all about the letter in the right place. <laughs> go on, Tarkina. Then I called the maid who was to go with me to the woods and perform the rites of Sardina and told her to wake me very early in the morning. And I became merry with her and gave her wine to drink. But I had mixed such things in her cup that I knew she must sleep for a night and a day. As soon as the household of my father had committed themselves to sleep, I arose and put on an armor of my brother's, which I always kept in my chamber in his memory. I put into my girdle all the money I had and certain choice jewels and provided myself also with food and saddled the mare with my own hands and rode away in the second watch of the night. I directed my course not to the woods where my father supposed that I would go, but north and east to Tashban. Now, for three days and more, I knew that my father would not seek me being deceived by the words I had said to him. And on the fourth day, we arrived at the city of Azim Balda. Now, Azim Balda stands at the meeting of many roads from its the post of the Tishrak, May he live forever. Ride on swift horses to every part of the empire, and it is one of the rights and privileges of the greater Tarkans to send messages by them. I therefore went to the chief of the messengers in the house of imperial post in Asim Balda and said, Oh, this passenger of messages, here is a letter from my uncle Ashashta Tarkan to Kidresh Tarkan, Lord of Caliber. Take now these five crescents and cause it to be sent to him. And the chief of the messenger said, To hear is to obey. This letter was feigned to be written by Ahashka, and this was the signification of the writing. Ahasha Tarkan to Kidrash Tarkan. Salutations and peace in the name of Tash, the irresistible, inexorable, be it known to you that as I made my journey towards your house to perform the contract of marriage between me and your daughter, Aravis Tarkina, I pleased Fortune and the gods that I fell in with her in the forest when she had ended the rites and sacrifices of Sardina, according to the custom of maidens. And when I learned who she was, being delighted with her beauty and discretion, I became inflamed with love, and it appeared to me that the sun would be dark to me if I did not marry her at once. Accordingly, I prepared the necessity sacrifices and marry your daughter the same hour that I met her and have returned with her to my own house. And we both pray and charge you to come hither as speedily as you may, that we may be delighted with your face and speech, and also that you may bring with you the dowry of my wife which by reason of my great charges and expenses I require without delay. And because thou and I are brothers, I assure myself that you will not be angered by this haste of my marriage, which is wholly occasioned by the great love I bear your daughter. And I commit you to the care of all the gods. As soon as I had done this, I wrote on in all haste from Asimbalda, 
fearing no pursuit and expecting that my father, having received such a letter, will send messages to Al-Hasha or go to him himself, and that before the matter was discovered, I should be on, be beyond Tashban. And that in the pit of my story until the very night when I was chased by lions and met you at the swimming of the salt water. And what happened to the girl, the one you drugged, said Chasta. Doubtless that she was beaten for sleeping late, said Aravis coolly. But she was a tool and spy of my stepmother. I am very glad they should beat her. I say, that was hardly fair, said Shasta. I didn't, I did not do any of these things for the sake of pleasing you, said Arvis. And there's another thing I don't understand about the story, said Shasta. You're not grown up. I don't believe you're any older than I am. I don't believe you're as old. How could you be getting married at your age? Arvis said nothing, but Bree at once said, Chasta, don't display your ignorance. They're always married at the age of, in the great Tarkhan families. Chasta turned very red, though it was hardly light enough for the others to see it, and felt snubbed. Erebus asked Bree for his story. Bree told it, and Chasta thought that he put in a great deal more than he needed about the falls <laughs> and the bad writing. Bree obviously thought it very funny, but Arvis did not laugh. When Bree had finished, they all went to sleep. Next day, all four of them, two horses and two humans, continued their journey together. Chesa thought it had been much pleasanter when he and Bree were on their own. For now, it was Bree and Arvis who did nearly all the talking. Bree had lived a long time in Kellerman and had always been among Tarkans and Tarkans horses. And so, of course, he knew a great many of the same people and places that Aravis knew. She would always be saying, like, but if you were at the fight of Sulindre, you would have been seen my cousin, Alimash. And Bria would answer, oh yes, Alimash. He was only a captain of the chariots, you know. I don't quite hold with chariots or the kind of horses who draw chariots. <clears throat> That's not real cavalry. But he is worthy nobleman. He fills my nose bag with sugar after the taking of tea pet. Or else Bree would say, I was down in the lake of Misrael that summer. And Arvis would say, Oh, Misrael, I had a friend there. La Saralin Tarkina. What a delightful place it is. Those gardens in the valley of the thousand perfumes. Bree was not in the least trying to leave Shasta out of things, though Shasta sometimes nearly thought he was. People who know a lot of the same things can hardly help talking about them. And if you're there, you can hardly help feeling that you're out of it. The wing, the mare, was rather shy before a great war horse like Bree and said very little. And Arvis never spoke to Shasta at all, if she could help it. Soon, however, they had more important things to think of. They were getting near Tashban. There were more and larger villages, more people on the roads, 
They now did nearly all their traveling by night and hid as best as they could during the day. And at every halt, they argued and argued about what they were to do when they reached Tashban. Everyone had been putting off this difficulty, but now it could be put off no longer. During these discussions, Arabis became a little, a very little less friendly to Chastam. One usually gets on better with people when one is making plans and one is talking about nothing in particular. Bree said the first thing now to do was to fix a place where they would all promise to meet on the far side of Tashban, even if by an ill luck they got separated in passing the city. He said the best place would be the tombs of the ancient kings on the very edge of the desert. Things like great stone beehives, he said, you can't possibly miss them. And the best of it is that none of the Calamirs will go near them because they think the place is haunted by ghouls and are afraid of it. Arvis asked if it wasn't really haunted by ghouls. But Bree said he was a free Narnian horse and didn't believe in these Calamir tales. And then Chasta said he wasn't a Calamir either and didn't care a straw about the old stories of ghouls. This wasn't quite true, but it rather impressed Arvis though at the moment it annoyed her too. And of course, she said she didn't mind any number of ghouls either. So it was settled that the tombs would be their assembly place on the other side of Tashpan. And everyone felt they were getting on very well till Hewin humbly pointed out that the real problem was not where they should go when they have to go through Tashpan, but how they were gonna get through it. Oh, we'll settle that tomorrow, ma'am, said Bree. Time for a little sleep now. <laughs> but it wasn't easy to settle. Arvis' first suggestion was that they should swim across the river below the city during the night and not go into Tashban at all. But Bree had two reasons against this. One was that the river mouth was very wide and it would be too far and long to swim or a wing to do, especially with a rider on her back. He thought it would be so long for himself too, but he said much less about that. The others was that it would be a full of shipping, and of course anyone on the deck of a ship who saw two horses swimming past will almost sense, almost certain to be inquisitive. Jasta thought they should go up the river above Tashban and across it where it was narrow, but Bree explained that there were gardens and pleasure houses on both banks of the river for miles, and that there would be Tarkans and Tarkinas living in them, and riding about the roads and having water parties on the river. In fact, it would be the most likely place in the world for meeting someone who would recognize Arabis or even himself. We'll have to have a disguise, said Chasta. Wynne said it looked to her as if the safest thing was to ride through the city itself from gate to gate because one was less likely to be noticed in the crowd, but she approved of the idea of disguises as well. She said both the humans will have to dress in rags and look like peasants, slaves, and all arrivals' armor and all saddles and things must be made 
into bundles and put in our backs. And the children must pretend to drive us and people will think we're only packing horses. My dear Wynne, said Arvis, rather scornfully, as if anyone could mistake Bree for anything but a war horse, however you disguise him. I should not think. Indeed, said Bree, snorting and letting his ears go ever so little back. <laughs> I know it's not a very good plan, said Wayne, but I think it's our only chance. And we haven't been groomed for ages, and we're not looking quite ourselves. At least I'm part, I'm sure I'm not. I do think it we get well plastered with mud and go along with our heads down as if we're tired and lazy and don't lift our hooves hardly at all, we might not be noticed. And our tails ought to be cut shorter, not neatly, you know, but all right. My dear ma'am, said Bree, have you pictured yourself how very disagreeable it would be to arrive in Narnia in that condition? Yeah. Well, said Wynne, <laughs> she was a very sensible mare. The main thing <laughs> is to get there. Though nobody much liked it, it was Wynne's plan which had to be adopted at the end. It was a troublesome one and involved a certain amount of what Chester called stealing and Bree called raiding. One farm lost a few sacks that evening and another lost a coil of rope. The next was some tartar old boy's clothes for Arvis to wear had to be fairly bought and paid for in the village. Chester returned with them in triumph just as the evening was closing. The others were waiting for him among the trees at the foot of a low range of wooded hills which lay right across the path. Everyone was feeling excited because this was the last hill. When they reached and the ridge at the top, they would be looking down on Tashban. I do wish we were there safely past it, muttered Shasta to win. Oh, I do too. I do test it, Wynne, fervently. That night, they wounded, they wound their way through the woods up the ridge by a woodcutter's track. And when they came out of the woods at the top, they could see thousands of lights in the valley down below them. Chasta had no notion of what a great city would be like, and it frightened him. They had their supper and the children got some sleep, but the horses woke them very early in the morning. The stars were still out and the grass was terrible, cold and wet, but daybreak was just be beginning. Far to their right across the sea, Arabis went a few steps away into the woods and came back looking odd in her new ragged clothes and carrying her real ones in a bundle. These and her armor and shield and skimatar and the two saddles and the rest of the horses, fine furnishing were put into the socks. Bree and Wynne had already got themselves as dirty and bedraggled as they could, and it only remained to shorten their tails, as the only tool for doing this was Arabis skimatar. One of the packs had to be undone again in order to get it out. It was a longish job and rather hurt the horse, says. 
My word, said Bree. <laughs> if it wasn't a talking horse when a lovely kick in the face I could give you, I thought you were going to cut it, not pull it up. That's what it feels like. <laughs> but in spite of semi-darkness and cold fingers, all was done in the end. The big pack bound on the horses, the rope halters, which they were now wearing instead of bridles and reins, in the children's hands, and the journey began. Remember, said Bree, keep together if we can. If not, meet at the tombs of the ancient kings, and whoever gets there first must wait for others. And remember, said Shasta, don't you two horses forget yourself and start talking whatever happens. This is the end of chapter 3.